0: Welcome to Settle Smart, the podcast by the National Structured Settlement Trade Association, or NASTA. Our mission is simple. We champion structured settlements' growth, establishment, and preservation. The Settle Smart podcast brings you the latest trends, insightful analyses, and expert opinions from the structured settlements arena. So whether you're a claimant, an attorney, or an insurance professional, the Settle Smart podcast is your guide to staying in touch with this complex yet rewarding landscape. Let's listen in on the latest episode now. Welcome back to the National Structured Settlements Trade Association podcast, Settle Smart. I'm your guest host today, Chris Chan, a longtime member of NASTA and a settlement advisor with Ringler based in Southern California. Today, we will delve into the December 9th, 2022 IRS Generic Legal Advice Memorandum, or GLAM for short. This GLAM addressed the payment of legal fees to third parties. This GLAM memorandum shook the industry and raised key issues surrounding structured settlements and attorney fee structures. To help us understand its implications and the validity of standard fee structures, we have a special guest today. Matthew Meltzer is a business corporate tax law attorney with Flaster Greenberg, a full-service commercial business law firm with multiple offices across the nation. Matt is a legal expert with extensive experience in advising on transactional tax matters and moreover, he is an industry expert with regard to income tax treatment of structured litigation settlements, qualified settlement funds, and attorney fee arrangements. Matt, I'm so pleased to have you here today. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here with you.
0: So since I've been given as a guest host full control of this podcast, and I'm, I've been told I can do whatever I want, I want to th- do things a little bit differently. We're going to kick off today's podcast with a quick icebreaker called This or That. The premise is pretty simple. I'm going to give you a couple options. It's going to be this or that, and you would choose which you'd rather experience or have, right? So, for example, I could say experience a hurricane in Southern California or be snowed in in New York City. Which would you prefer?
1: Oh, snowed in in New York City.
0: Okay, so that was that was just a, a, a trial. Here, here are the this or that questions. So, bad haircut or spinach in your teeth all day and nobody told you about it?
1: Ooh, spinach in your teeth.
0: Okay staycation or vacation
1: oh vacation
0: all right are you a half glass full or half glass empty kind of guy
1: i hope i'm a glass half full guy
0: as am i my friend i
1: have to defer to the people i interact with hopefully they would say the same thing
0: yeah (laughs) i hear you all right so crunchy peanut butter or smooth peanut butter
1: oh that's a tough one Uh, i'm going to give you a lawyer answer it depends It depends on what you're using it for. Are you putting it on a cracker? Are you putting it on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Are you putting it on toast with honey? I don't know. I guess if I had to choose one, I would go with Smooth.
0: Okay. I personally am a crunchy guy myself, but (laughs) no matter what what it is. (laughs) Uh, Vampires or werewolves? Would you rather have to deal with vampires or werewolves?
1: Oh, Probably werewolves.
0: Okay. Marvel or Star Wars? Marvel. Okay. Starbucks or anti-Starbucks?
1: Anti-Starbucks. Me too, man. (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, it just tastes like motor oil.
0: (laughs) I agree, I agree. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if you could actually clean engine parts with it. All right, wine or beer? Ooh, i go with beer. Okay. Android or iPhone? iPhone. Okay, last one. All right. Guest on the Ringler podcast or guest on the Settle Smart Nasta podcast?
1: Master um, podcast, <laughs> no question. I revoke all prior responses to that question I may have given elsewhere.
0: <laughs> I love that answer, Matt Ross, the host of Ringler's podcast. If you're listening in, I apologize. He likes us more. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> Matt all right, Ross well, is a great guy. yeah, he is a great guy. Well, now that we've gotten to know you a little bit more through your preferences, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, education, and how you landed where you are today?
1: I graduated from Vanderbilt Law School in 2012, and right afterwards did a federal judicial clerkship in the Western District of Pennsylvania, which is the federal court in Pittsburgh. And for the first three years of my career, I actually practiced labor and employment law, but my heart was always in tax. One of my first jobs out of college was as a wealth advisor at a small outfit that had, despite not having a lot of people, had about $5 billion of assets under management, and one of the services we provided was preparing tax returns and i just loved it so after about three years i decided i needed to make a switch got my llm and had been practicing tax ever since i do mostly transactional tax i have a specialty in like kind exchanges of real estate but i also do mergers and acquisitions general tax planning i do a lot of state tax and also taxation uh, litigation settlements. And one of the things I really like about this field is that I get to pull on my experience as a wealth planner and investment advisor in working with clients. And it's it's just such a fun field. I, I really enjoy working with the planners and the attorneys. It's just a very rewarding uh, subspecialty to have.
0: So just a quick follow-up question, you know, in um... In college, or at least uh, I'm told from a lot of my attorney clients that in law school, they kind of try to try to figure out what what field they want to go. It seems like you figured that you like tax law and, and business corporate law more towards while you were delved into your career. When you were like studying a little bit about business corporate law and taxes in college, did you also have an inkling like towards it? Did you start to lean towards that? Or was, at that time, was it more just kind of, I don't really know. I'm just ch- yeah. trying to get my law degree. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, in, in college, I was an economics and political science major, and I went to a liberal arts school where they, they teach you a lot about the liberal arts, but that doesn't give you much practical application and things. So I can read the newspaper very intelligently, but I didn't come out with much in the way of vocational skills. I, I, something about tax just pulled me in immediately. I mean, it's, it's a field that relies on you know, legal principles because the Internal Revenue Code is a statute that is... You know, passed by Congress, signed by the president, and it pulls on issues related to like administrative law and the role of agencies and the power that an agency can have and to what extent it can be bound, which are topics we're going to get into later in our discussion, which is why I mentioned it. But it just combined a lot of things that I really, really like. I like numbers, I like finance, and tax just pulls it all in together.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm glad we're going to be talking about something you're passionate and love about today. And uh, speaking of which, let's just dive right in. Matt, when the Glam Memo first came out, I and many of my settlement consultant colleagues and our respective attorney clients were a little concerned. I personally initially thought that the release of the Glam Memo might mean the possible loss of a sizable amount of our book of business. Do you think I was overreacting? Was I right to be concerned? What were your thoughts?
1: I don't think you were were wrong to to react the way you did at all. It was definitely shocking. And it was shocking to those of us who follow this industry very closely and are very familiar with the legal authorities. I remember reading it initially, all 25 or so pages of it and, and being sort of stunned. And it wasn't until I read it for like the 10th or 12th time that I realized how limited in scope it actually is. But certainly when an agency releases guidance like that that's unprompted and that seems to pick apart or attack a longstanding industry or a line of precedence, of course you're you're, you're gonna be frightened. So I I think the industry was perfectly correct to react the way that it did. And it, it took a little bit of time for the dust to settle.
0: Yeah, truly. What are your thoughts on what might have prompted the IRS to issue this GLAM? Could you shed some light on the probable reasons behind its issuance?
1: So we don't know what exactly triggered it. Was it an audit? Were it questions that field agents were were, were sending up to the chief counsel's office? There are rules in the IRS's internal revenue manual that talk about how a GLAM is supposed to come about. Typically, it's the result of a request from you know, typically someone in the field to the IRS chief counsel's office for guidance on a particular issue. And often, when the, the request comes from a division council, which it did in this case, there's supposed to be a conference between the division council and the associates chief counsel, or sort of the brain or nerve center of the IRS, to narrow the focus of the issues that are going to be addressed so that. the the advice is pointed or directed in in some fashion. Most likely, folks in in the field saw something that they didn't like or at a minimum were concerned about, needed more guidance on, and the GLAM was the result.
0: Well, Matt, to better comprehend the context of the GLAM, let's talk a little bit about standard attorney fee structures. I personally, as an expert in the industry, am pretty versed in it. And I'm I'm sure a lot of our settlement consultants, if they're listening, are as well. But I think some attorneys who tune into this channel may not be as versed or possibly some of our listeners just don't know much about it. What exactly is a standard fee structure? How does it work?
1: A standard fee structure is where an attorney agrees to receive his or her contingent fee over a period of years rather than in one lump sum in the year that the settlement agreement typically is is what the impetus is, is negotiated. A key portion of that or element of that is that the fee structure needs to be in place at the time the recovery has materialized, meaning the plaintiff's right to receive the settlement has materialized. The defendant typically assigns the obligation to pay the contingent fee to an assignment company And the assignment company then remits the fee to the attorney over over a period of years. The payments can start in the year that the settlement is entered into, or it can be deferred for a period of time. I've seen it three, four, five years until the periodic payments start flowing to the attorney. The fee structure originates from the tax court's decision in Childs versus Commissioner, 1994, which was upheld by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in 1996. For those who have read the glam, there's a discussion in it of the significance of the 11th Circuit not having issued its own decision in the Child's case, which I I don't think is of of any moment or or of any importance. But the key, that, that discussion, those facts, is that the attorney fee structure is something that is approved of and memorialized in existing precedent existing case law.
0: That was actually my follow-up question. Was I was going to ask ask you about case law, but uh it seems like you've already answered that. What is the advantage really for an attorney to utilize a, a structured standard fee structure for their fees?
1: It allows them to to space the the tax consequences of receiving a, a large fee over a period of years. You know, plaintiffs attorneys, and I'm conjecturing a little bit, have to manage their cash flow, right? Because they may have years where not a lot of money comes in or they may have years where a lot comes in. And to space that out, I think the, the deferral mechanism of a, of a fee structure is tremendously valuable. There are issues that arise for plaintiffs when a large settlement comes in in a, in a particular year, they may not be able to deduct the attorney's fees that, that they pay depending on the nature of the, of the claim. And it produces a nasty tax consequence for them. So it it sort of allows the parties to smooth out their tax obligations over a period of time.
0: Okay. I had a quick question actually from an attorney client of mine. Just curious to get your take on this. Their question was: if I'm already in the highest tax bracket possible for my business, basically his his law firm is just crushing it and doing so well. Is there really an advantage to structure my fees? Because each year I take the fees, I'm still already in the highest tax bracket.
1: <laughs> That's a good question. I might have to punt to the financial advisors on that one because it it may have to do more with just financial planning and cash flow management, you know. But I I, I certainly see the point and. You know, with, with plaintiffs, there's this thing called the contingent fee trap where the, the plaintiff is taxed on the portion of the recovery that represents the contingent fee owed to the attorney. And as a result of that, plaintiff can walk away with like 14 or 15 cents on the dollar of their total recovery and deferral mechanisms allay the, the sting of that. That's sort of the, the same category that I think you, you put attorney fee structures in, you know, it sort of lays the sting. But that's uh, a it's a good question. And I'm, I'll, I'll punt to the planners on
0: that one. That's fair. I you know I, I personally wasn't sure how to answer the question, and then I thought, well, you rely on contingency fees, meaning you never know when money's going to stop, right? Or like when the right. cash flow is going to come in. By structuring, you're able to create a flow, and you know that money's coming in. So it it like operates closer to like a regular business where you know money's coming in. And right. then all of us were just completely thrown off when you know the pandemic happened. So it was just like, a, like oh, well, if you had structured your fees, you wouldn't have to worry about a pause in the court system right now.
1: That's a, that's a great observation. I hadn't thought of that.
0: So jumping back to the GLAM, how significant do you think the GLAM's impact is on the structured settlements industry for attorney fee structures? Do you think there's anything structured settlement consultants can do better to protect their attorney clients?
1: I don't think the GLAM impacts structured settlements, or attorney fee structures rather at all early on in the glam the author concluded that child's does not apply to the arrangement that it was considering and the arrangement that the glam considered was not a fee structure arrangement so to me that's an implicit acknowledgement that child's remains good law child's was a fully reviewed tax court opinion that was affirmed by the u.s court of appeals for the 11th circuit it has been on the books for almost 30 years. People have been relying on it day in, day out, since it was decided uh, to structure these arrangements. It, as a constitutional matter, an agency can't just wake up one morning and decides it, it's no longer going to follow a presidential opinion, um, mm. in addition one that it has relied on throughout the years in rulings and, uh, and, and guides and advice. So. I think if you are within the corners of the child's arrangement, you should be okay. I use the word should because nobody can predict the future. If you are outside of that, you may well be concerned because if you're not within the ambit of what has been approved, you run the risk that the agency can examine your arrangement find some fact that distinguishes what you're doing from what child's allows you to do and say well that's a material distinction and as a result you're not allowed to rely on this but now that the dust has settled and, and there was a lot of dust you know, I, I think folks <laughs> who are you kind know, of within the traditional lane should feel okay about what they're doing
0: just for fun just for fun let's play what if scenario here okay. so like what if this actually did become an IRS policy. I just want to get your thoughts on this. Would, would like past attorneys be affected or would this be more, I mean, let's just pretend like 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 it was addressing everything, including a, like traditional attorney fee structures and the different other products. Would attorney fees from the past be affected or would it be like more of a, do you think it'd be more of a going forward kind of thing?
1: So if the statute of limitations on a return involving income from a fee structure has 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 elapsed and then i think you should be okay i I guess the problem is if you are continuing to receive income pursuant to a fee structure can the irs blow up the whole arrangement or can it just attack the payments that you haven't yet received and force you to recognize them in one year now those are interesting questions and i don't think we know the answers to them you know certainly they're there's an estoppel argument, right? That you know, the agency is revisiting an arrangement that has been relied upon for years and that is blessed by a, a tax court case. So I, I think the IRS would have a lot of trouble mounting a successful challenge to it. A successful challenge being a court that, you know, child's was was wrongly decided and, and we're you know we're now going to adopt the IRS's view. So I would think Probably the, the relief would be prospective, but it's an unanswered question.
0: Thanks, Matt. I just wanted to pick your brain on that. So that's such a what-if question. It's like, it's like, okay, well, this is speculative. This is kind of what I think could possibly happen. But nobody really knows the answer to that. But thank you, Matt, for providing such valuable insights into the GLAM and its impact on structured settlements. It's really essential for our listeners to understand the legal implications surrounding attorney fee structures. They need to be done correctly. Matt, if anybody had any further questions or wanted to hire you as an attorney, how could they reach you?
1: Sure. They can reach me at matthew.melzer at flastergreenberg.com. Our firm's website is flastergreenberg.com. And I, I have a profile on that page. It talks about my background. It's got my email address, my telephone number. I think it even has a link to my LinkedIn profile. I mean, really, nobody who has even the most slight presence on the, on the internet is, is it's safe. So yeah, I, I'm out there. You find me and, I, and I'd love to work with you.
0: But does it have a link to your MySpace? I'm Wow, oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. Reaching back into the past. No,
0: I, just not. I don't even know if my MySpace is still up. All right. Well, yeah, um, where all that goes. Yeah. Who knows? That concludes our discussion today on Settle Smart, bringing clarity to complex financial puzzles, one episode at a time stay tuned for more. That wraps up another episode of Settle Smart by the National Structured Settlement Trade Association. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to the Settle Smart podcast so you can continue to stay informed within the structured settlement landscape. For more resources and information, visit us at NASTA.com. That's N-S-S-T-A dot com. Thank you for tuning in.